I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Bethany Brookshire, is a science writer and author and a host on the podcast Science for the People. From 2013 to 2021, she was a staff writer with Science News Magazine and Science News for Students, a digital magazine covering the latest in scientific research for young audiences. She loves to write about neuroscience, pharmacology, environmental science, science fiction, and the practice and pressures of the scientific life. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic and The Washington Post, among other places, and her voice heard on NPR and the CBC. She is the author of the recently published book, Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains, which is the subject of today's interview. So Bethany, welcome to Delving In. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with just hearing a little bit about your background. What's the background that you brought to the book and what motivated you to write it? So weirdly, I have no background in human-wildlife conflict, which is kind of what the the book is actually about. Uh, my background academically is I have a PhD in physiology and pharmacology, which means that I was basically a neuroscientist um, for about 10 years. And then I transitioned into being a science journalist. And I came at the topic for the book, pests, animals we hate, very much kind of as a byproduct of my journalism. In 2016, I was reporting a piece for Science News, which I actually ended up reporting again for the book, that was a paper published in Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences about the earliest evidence of house mice. So there's tiny little mouse teeth that we can find from some of the earliest human habitations in places like the Levant. By studying those mouse teeth, the scientists were able to show that we've had house mice since we had houses. And I just became fascinated by this. I think it's beautiful that from the moment we've begun deeply altering our environments, we've attracted other species to take advantage of those environments, to help clean up our trash, though we might not see it that way. I love how we've created these spaces for animals. And that kind of sparked my interest. And from there, I started kind of gathering little stories of the animals we hate, the animals that bother us, and all the things that we've done. And we've done so many things <laughs> to try and get rid of them. So you could say that the animal world and the human world are way more interlaced than we give credit for. That we think of ourselves as being somehow apart from nature, we, we in the West and that the, the, the wild world is out there, but in fact, it's been intertwined in some ways for forever. Yes. Well, since that's been civilization. Yes, and I think that's one of the things that I, I hope comes through um, in the book. I think it's one of the most important things. We spend so much time in the West, in the developed world, the global North, however you wanna call it, thinking of ourselves as separate from nature and wilderness as somewhere where humans are not. And this has had many fascinating consequences. It has changed where we think an animal's place is. An animal does not belong in our home unless we welcome it there. But it's also changed where we think people are. So it's changed things like who is allowed to reside in national parks in many countries because we see wilderness as places where people are not. And so that was a really fascinating kind of turn that my research ended up taking. Yeah, people are kind of taboo. They're kind of forbidden in a sense. And, and I know I've, I've had that, that feeling too. I mean, growing up in New York City, 
there's a longing to be in a place where there's no other people. The only person would be myself and my friend or a friend or a family that was with me, but there shouldn't be anyone else. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a kind of desire for that kind of immersion in a non-human nature, but it doesn't have to be seen that way at all. And, and certainly seeing ourselves as outside of nature has all kinds of problems. So many problems. It has, it has led to a lot of problems. It has led to a lot of fascinating attempts at solutions, many of which completely fail, which is one of my favorite things. Yes, I, I, it was one of my favorite things of your, on your book, and, and uh, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Before we do, though, I just want to hear a little bit more about uh, the extensive research that you had to do in writing this book. I mean, it's clear that you must have talked to hundreds of people and traveled to all kinds of places to get the information for this book. So you may have started out without the uh, ecology background, but you certainly had by the time you finished. One of my sources actually joked I should uh, submit it to her department for a master's degree. <laughs> I should just submit the book as my master's thesis. And I was like, that seems like a lot of work. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm fine. I've got enough degrees. Uh, but yes, there are, I believe, named, there are 265 sources who I spoke to. Uh, there are more than that, that, you know, didn't actually end up getting named. And of course, I read tons and tons of books and piles and piles of papers. I didn't do as much travel as many people think, uh, mostly because there was this thing you might have heard of, COVID-19, really put a damper on my travel plans. <laughs> so, so you wrote most of the book and did most of the research during the pandemic? I did all of it, yes. It's a pretty fast uh, writing process, actually. Yes. So I got the book contract itself. I wrote the proposal, which included the first chapter, and got the contract and everything in autumn of 2020. And so I wrote the proposal pretty much from the start of 2020 to autumn of 2020. And then I wrote the book itself in 18 months after that. That's incredible. Wow. Wow. Well, another thing that I loved about your book is the mix of the subjective and the objective. So the subjective uh, feeling toward animals, the feeling of being invaded, of uh, and then uh, having an aversion to the animal and demonizing the animal. You mentioned that anthropologist Mary Douglas famously described dirt as matter out of place, and that pests can be seen in the same way as animals out of place. So that was the kind of the subjective part, and, and that's a huge, huge aspect of the book and of the subject, you know, that animals can be seen in all sorts of ways that have nothing to do with the animal per se, but have everything to do with our interaction with the animal and the animal's interaction with us and their competition for, for our food source or their stealing, uh, which is maybe a, a slightly pejorative word, <laughs> of our food things of that sort. And, and then you also talk about the, the objective aspects of what's actually happening, what, what the animal behavior is like, what they're after, um, even, and also even taking the animal's point of view, which is really cool. Like, what's it like to be a bear seeing this great food source? <laughs> yeah, and that was one of the things that I found most fascinating about the concept of a pest. When we label something a pest, I think we often fail to think about the fact that that is a value judgment. We just made a value judgment about an animal, which is, you know, fine. We make value judgments about everything around us all the time. But unless we recognize that those are value judgments, we often consider them licensed to do lots of things, right? Because we hate rats, we think it's okay to do some pretty terrible things to them, honestly. And 
if we thought about it, if we said, oh, I'm putting a, a moral judgment on an animal that's just trying to survive in the ecosystem that I happen to share with it, we might actually come to different ways of kind of living with these animals that are not quite so combative. Okay, so this is, I think, a good segue to talk about something that many of our listeners may feel squeamish to hear, and that's the uh, Karni Mata Temple in India. Just to uh, tell us about that, to get a, a take on, on a different view of rats, very different. <laughs> yes, that was one of the places I really wanted to go and actually ended up could not go because of COVID. I have a friend who actually lives in New Delhi and we were going to go together and it was going to be really exciting. And then the Delta wave hit <laughs> and the last thing they needed was me. <laughs> um, but I did actually speak to many of the people who worship at Karnimata, the people who run the temple. Um, and so I, I spoke at length with them about their belief systems. And so Karnimata is a temple that is located in Deshinok, which is about an eight hour drive from New Delhi. It's in kind of the Northwest of India. And this temple is home to more than, well, an estimated number of 25,000 black rats. So that's ratus ratus. And these animals are sacred. Uh, they are holy. I would not go so far as to say they are deities. They are not, but they are, they are holy. And that is because they are kind of the sacred manifestation of the goddess that is worshipped there. So Karnimata is named for Karnimata, who is the goddess. She was a human woman and she was a sage. And I believe it was her sister's son drowned while playing. And she prayed, Karnimata prayed to intervene in the boy's life. And she either prayed or fought the god of death, that part's in dispute, but she won. And she decreed that from that day forth, any member of her family, when they died, they would become a rat. And then when that rat died, they would be reincarnated as a human. And so these rats that live in this temple are considered to be the descendants of Karnimata's family. And the family does still worship at that temple. And many outsiders um, also, who are not members of the family, also worship at the temple. The temple is, no surprise, a very strong tourist draw. <laughs> Lots of tourists come to this temple. But it's entirely devoted to the rats. So it's it's got these beautiful carved silver doors that are covered in silver rats. There are beautiful marble floors for the rats. Giant dishes of milk are left out every day for the rats. The rats have a special kitchen in the temple devoted to their feeding. It didn't used to be that way. They actually used to rely on donations of food from outside the temple. And so worshippers would come in and bring food. But the food was not considered to be of sufficient quality. Uh, it wasn't considered to be healthy enough for the rats. They were bringing them junk food, basically. And the people who run the Karnimata temple were like, that's not okay. They need, they need a better healthy diet. And so now the rats are fed nice healthy diets. There's like beans and brown bread and vegetables. It's, it really, their diet is, is very enviable. Um, and people come and worship them. And the rats are never killed. Uh, they are medically treated. They, um, they are considered sacred. And what's really fascinating about that is that one of the worshippers who I spoke to 
whose name actually is Carney. His uh, his first name was changed to to the glory of the goddess after he recovered from an illness as a child. And I asked him, you know, well, what do you think of rats like outside the temple? And he said, oh, oh, I hate rats. I'm absolutely terrified of rats <laughs> because the rats in the temple are not rats. They are reincarnated humans. And you have to wonder if, if uh, because of the Hindu belief system, that it is possible to see an animal as a human and a human as an animal. And even though I would have thought that being turned into an animal from being a human is a demotion karmically, it's it's all part of a much more extended process. So it's you can still have reverence for that being who's uh, eventually going to become reincarnated upward again, so to speak. Right. And it also shows that our beliefs about these animals are not set in stone. You can see animals more than one way depending on their context. You know, another good example of this is many people see their cats as people, as having individual personalities, you know, as loving them. And I mean, I cannot confirm or deny whether or not your cat loves you. (laughs) Um, I prefer to think that my cat loves me. I could be wrong. (laughs) But, you know, I can see that cat in more than one way, because we also have to acknowledge that cats can cause ecological damage uh, when they are released on islands, for example. They can wipe, wipe out all the birds. Right. And I think people often think that there are some animals that can only be perceived in one way, like rats or snakes. And that's just not the case. We can see every single animal in more than one way if we want to. Yeah, it's almost as if there's a welcome sign in, in the brain that can be turned, you know, to the welcome or the not welcome side. And so, you know, getting back to rats, I mean, you have not only being welcomed into this temple, but people probably overlooking the smells and, and the droppings that are probably everywhere because they're part of the sacred space. <laughs> you know, it's not, they're not see, felt or seen the same way as you would if they're unwelcome. Or another example is I, had a neighbor who had pet rats. Uh, I think they were white rats. And they were clearly very welcome in the, in the home, not just in the cage. I mean, they'd be crawling all over him up and down his back. And, you know, I, and I'm sure that he would feel differently if it was a, a rat that wasn't his pet. Yes. And it's actually interesting. I used the rat chapter to kind of talk about the origins of disgust as a phenomenon, because many people find rats particularly disgusting and disease spreading in particular. And so you would find rat feces exceptionally disgusting. But disgust is actually a very malleable thing. It's not something that is permanent. And a good example of this is anyone who has had a baby will acknowledge that after the first, mm, I don't know, couple of weeks, you're no longer truly disgusted by baby poop. It's just you get numb to the exposure. (laughs) Well, and especially one's own baby's poop. Yes, one's <laughs> own baby poop. It does not um, It does not smell as bad as it used to. It doesn't disgust you as much. We can get used to things that are in different contexts and see them as more or less disgusting, depending on that context. So when we talk about the, the objective aspects, you know, the threats to the environment and biodiversity, clearly... In, well, most of the examples that you give in your book are competitions and, and threats to biodiversity that we ourselves introduced. <laughs> and that comes across very clearly in, in your book. And I think the poster child for that is Australia. 
And Australia was, of course, the most isolated of the continents before the European colonists came. And they, you know, oh, we need rabbits to hunt. So, you know, <laughs> it's, they, they were totally, totally out to lunch when it came to the possible consequences of introducing new animals. I love Australia. I'm very much afraid that once I've written this book that they won't let me in. <laughs> I love it there so much. <laughs> you, you and Novak Djokovic. Hey, I'm vaccinated. <laughs> I mean, it's just just in incredible, uh, the stories. So tell us some of them, some of your favorite ones about Australia. Oh, goodness. I love Australia. Um, <laughs> I and, mean, and there's so many to choose from, right? You've, you've got uh, rabbits, cane toads, horses, mice, cats. I mean, just... <laughs> I have a strong love for the cane toad, um, a deep love for the cane toad. And this actually goes back to my childhood um, because, as I mentioned in the book, there is a nature documentary. It is a 1988 nature documentary. It is now available for free on YouTube. You can go look this up. Um, it is called Cane Toads and Unnatural History. And this is a masterpiece of documentary cinema. I cannot recommend this show enough. It is so good. There are, there are tiny little girls in poofy dresses snuggling their pet cane toads. There's a dude who has cane toads creeping on him in the shower in like this, this strong psycho moment. <laughs> there's, there's creepy horror music. There's a dude driving a van down a road and deliberately swerving to hit all the cane toads. <laughs> Wow. wow. I, I should wow. note at this point that no cane toads were actually harmed in the making of this film. Those were potatoes that he was squishing. <laughs> okay, but, but but some people love the cane toads and made them into pets? Some people do love the cane toad. Um, but the 1988 documentary, Cane Toads and Unnatural History, proved to be hugely popular in Australia and kind of sealed the cane toad's fate as kind of public enemy number one in the Australian mind. And as you mentioned... It is, in fact, ironic because Australians brought the cane toad because they were trying to grow sugarcane in the 1930s. So enter the time warp with me. We're going to the 1930s. They were trying to grow sugarcane and they ran into the problem of cane grubs, which are several species of beetles that eat away at the roots of the sugarcane. And it's very bad for your sugarcane industry. They were looking for something to stop the cane grubs. And to their credit, they did not want to throw piles of pesticides on their fields. So, you know, A plus for that. Good job, Australia. So they started looking for something they could release to eat the cane grubs. And what they found was the cane toad, which in a few laboratory experiments had been shown to eat cane grubs. When presented with cane grubs, the cane toad will 100% eat those grubs. And so they said, oh, this seems like a great idea. And they dispatched a dude to Hawaii to bring back toads. And he brought back 101 toads. One died in transit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, they, you would think, you would think that a good scientist would say, okay, well, we want to check the toads. We want to see that they're free of diseases. We want to see if they can breed successfully in Australia. We want to make sure that, say, fields with cane toads are more productive than fields without cane toads. We want to make sure that cane toads are not a negative impact on the ecology of, of uh, Australian wildlife. Did they do any of these things? They did not. What happened? with the cane toads. It was such a great idea to uh, use a bio uh, method, uh, biological method rather than chemicals. What a great idea, right? Oh, yes, it was not a great idea. <laughs> they did not actually study the impacts of the cane toad. They simply checked to see if the cane toad would breed. It bred very well. 
And then they just release the toads <laughs> onto the fields of Australia. And then they realize their terrible mistake because you see cane toads do indeed eat cane grubs, but they have to get them. And the cane grubs, see, they're grubs, they live under the soil. And cane toads do not dig. And when cane grubs grow up, they become beetles and beetles have wings and cane toads do not fly. <laughs> so the cane toads did not have a good time trying to get these grubs. They found plenty of other stuff to eat. That was not the problem. And so the cane toads found plenty of other stuff to eat and started spreading across Australia. They are, in fact, still spreading across Australia. There is an invading wave that is currently moving its way through the Kimberley in Australia. The problem turned out not to be the toads themselves. People do not like toads. The toads were deemed unsightly. I think they're kind of cute, like for a toad. They're very classic toad looking. The real problem is that cane toads are poisonous. They have these huge shoulder pads. And when they get squeezed, like by a predator, for example, they release this kind of milky white poison. And anything that eats them quickly finds they have eaten their last meal. And it wasn't even good. And so as cane toads invaded new ecosystems in Australia, up to 90% of the predators in that area would die. These are things like freshwater crocodiles, goannas, which are monitor lizards, quolls, which are these like marsupial things. All sorts of animals would just immediately start dying from eating these toads. So ever since then, Australia has been on a kick trying to get rid of these toads. <laughs> To no avail, the toad persists. So my question is, did, does it, did this ever become a Monty Python episode? Sadly, no. No. All we have is, is the cane toad documentary, which I highly recommend everybody watch. It's actually really, really good, extremely entertaining. But what I found especially compelling about the story of the cane toad and about the story of many of the invasive species that we call pests is that the ecosystem of Australia, we often think of when we introduce invasive species, we think of the ecosystems that we put them into as being helpless victims. They're not. The ecosystems might reel. They might have some rough times. But many of them adapt. And in the case of the cane toad, many of the predators have begun to adapt to the toad. So native Australian water rats, for example, take the toad, flip it over, and eat its liver and organs from the other side so they don't get the poison. <laughs> um, there are birds that, I think they're kites, that will grab the toads and pull out their tongues and eat the tongues because the tongues aren't poisonous. There are red-bellied snakes in Australia that have begun to evolve small heads because small heads can't eat big toads and so they don't get poisoned. <laughs> and they've also begun to evolve resistance to the poison itself. And so the cane toads have been a real tragedy for many of the native predators of Australia. But they're also showing that life finds a way. Like the ecosystem is adapting over time. And now scientists are trying to help that ecosystem adapt. They are, for example, exposing some native predators to poisoned toad butts <laughs> before the actual cane toads arrive, so that the predators will eat the poisoned toad butt that has been laced with something non-lethal and realize that toads are bad news 
and then they won't eat the real toads when the toads get there. <laughs> so if you were uh, the science advisor for Australia, your advice would be just wait. It, I know it seems like a catastrophe now, but if you wait long enough, things will uh, reach a new equilibrium and it'll be okay. I mean, that's rather what's happening right now. Uh, you know, they're doing the method of the toad butts. This is kind of a, a project called Teacher Toads, where they use different cane toad formulations to teach predators ahead of time about the dangers of cane toads. And that's been a really useful method. There's not really a huge push now to get rid of the cane toad because it's just, there's kind of no point. Your book talks about all these invasive species that, that we introduced and the ecological consequences. It's probably not as serious as habitat loss. You know, it's the, the, the number of species that we're eliminating that way more directly. I would not necessarily want to say, oh, it's X times as dangerous. I, I, I mean, I can't say that. As certainly invasive species can contribute to habitat loss in some ways. Habitat loss itself can be a real issue. Uh, what I find especially compelling, though, is the phrase invasive species. It's so fascinating to me. It, it puts the onus on, on the invader when we're, in fact, introducing them. Yes, but it's so fascinating how we put that onus on that invader and call them an invasive species. But in other ways, we actually kind of lift our hands and like try to absolve ourselves of responsibility. So for example, because of climate change, there are species that are migrating. Some of those species are trees making like a slow march north. Some are like salamanders that are managing to thrive in more northern areas, things like that. You get a lot of those species. And we don't call those invasive species even though they are arriving in new ecosystems where they have not been seen before. We are calling them climate refugees, which not only makes you allow them, they're a refugee, you have to help, right? They also absolve us of responsibility. <laughs> we changed that climate, that's on us. <laughs> and it's so fascinating to kind of see that diversion occur. When native species move on their own, they are refugees. When we move them, they are invasive species. And what I especially love about that is that they're invasive species only when they succeed. So if we introduce an animal and it fails, <laughs> we're like, oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> we really, we hate animal success in a lot of ways. And don't get me wrong, invasive species do wreak havoc on ecosystems. That's absolutely a thing. But we often try to kind of almost absolve ourselves of responsibility. You know, oh, this rat is evil. Who put it there? Shh, we don't talk about who put it there. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of complicated attitudes that sort of uh, all enter into this. Uh, one of which is the hubris of the, uh, what you, I think what you call the European mindset of kind of overconfidence that humans can control nature. And you also make it clear in your book it's not only Western because uh, communist China under Mao did some incredible, incredibly invasive, uh, destructive things with the sparrow of all things, uh, thinking that if they eliminated the sparrow that would preserve the uh, fields of grain, but it turns out that they eat the insects that also eat the grain and it actually turned out to be worse than before. So 
it seems like it's maybe it's the hubris of, of advanced civilizations in some way and not just Western or Eastern. Uh, but you also make a nice contrast with the Native American approach, which is much more um, modest, shall we say. I mean, I wouldn't use the phrase advanced civilization. That kind of implies that some are, are better. <laughs> yeah, I know that's a little bit pejorative, but 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 I, I guess maybe instead of saying advanced, but just, you know, large scale, highly organized um civilizations that do a lot of rearranging of nature in order to build their populations. Right. Um, which is very different than a Native American in North America, you know, which was much more sparsely populated, didn't have access to herd animals, didn't have access to steel, uh, didn't uh, have access to farm, you know, work animals. I mean, so there was kind of disadvantages uh, just environmentally uh, that made it difficult to, to uh to expand into larger numbers quickly. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that, that was actually a disadvantage. Um, and there is some interesting uh, research actually showing that the Americas in particular used to be far more populated than we give them credit for. For example, there's a lot of um, older books you'll read and they're like, oh, you know, when colonists arrived in North America, the rivers were teeming with fish and there were buffalo over the plain and the uh, passenger pigeon darkened the sky. And this was all true. But there is now some evidence that shows part of the reason those animals were proliferating so incredibly much is because ahead of our colonization, we spread diseases. Oh, yes. And it is sometimes estimated, I believe, that those diseases wiped out 90% of the indigenous population before we even got there. Yeah, bo both here and also in Central America and South America. Exactly. And so we saw these species, these animal species as hyperabundant, when in fact, perhaps they were only hyperabundant because all of the people who usually would have been keeping those species lower were gone. So I think that's kind of a newer wave of thought that is kind of coming forth about populations in the Americas prior to Western contact. But I did want to get back to the idea of dominion. One of the things I had a lot of fun delving into uh, for this book was actually religion. I ended up speaking to a bunch of biblical scholars, and it was awesome. I don't know why they don't get invited to more dinner parties. They're so much fun. And we talked a lot about where Western culture in many ways gets this idea of dominion. The idea that we are in charge of the world, and maybe we're in charge of it because we are stewards. Maybe we are in charge of it because we are masters. But no, no matter what, it is our world given to us by God that we have a right and a duty to use as we see fit to be fruitful and multiply onto. And many ecologists have based this viewpoint back to Genesis uh, 123 which is, you know, and you shall be fruitful and multiply and you shall have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. And I forget the translation. And fill the earth. And so on. And the biblical scholars said, look, that is one verse in the Bible. The Bible is very large. <laughs> and there's more than one way to relate to animals within it. But the dominion-focused mindset has allowed Western society to draw this line between what is ours and what is not, where humans belong and where wildlife does not. And some people who I spoke to, some anthropologists and traditional ecological knowledge scientists, have brought that dominion-focused mindset 
even before Genesis to kind of the onset of large-scale agriculture and pastoralism in particular. Because once you start herding large numbers of animals, large numbers of animals that are helpless, large numbers of animals that are yours, you start seeing the competition for that resource, right? The wolves that would eat your sheep as an interloper, as something that is out to steal from you. And that is a line between you and the wilderness. People want to be comfortable and they, they don't want to have to have hardships or competition if they can help it. I mean, it's sort of a natural thing, you would think, but, but it's not the only way of looking at things. And if I could just quote from your book uh, about the Native American uh, uh, attitude, which is such a contrast. Uh, the First Peoples writes Joseph Marshall III in On Behalf of the Wolf and the First Peoples emulated the hunting styles of wolves and other predators they interacted with. But to be like the wolf meant that they also had to exist to serve the environment, to accept the mutuality of life. Every animal had their traits that helped them get by in the world, he notes. Deer have a strong sense of smell and skunks have a strong odor. Porcupines have quills. People have reasoning, understanding. In other words, the first peoples did not see their ability to reason or understand as anything that made them superior. Instead, it was simply their key to survival. Yes, and I think that's a really important viewpoint. And of course, I mean, I should stress here that not every indigenous person thinks that way. And, you know, there are many, many, many indigenous societies and many people in those societies. They probably all have slightly different opinions on this. In learning from many of the indigenous peoples I spoke to, they did not see themselves as separate from nature. Like, we, we often, I feel, in the West, give ourselves a lot of credit and animals very little credit, <laughs> right? You know, we are in charge and these poor dumb animals are trying to take the things from us. I feel in many of these indigenous societies, they gave themselves slightly less credit and animals more. So yes, humans have reasoning. Humans have, you know, the ability to work really well in groups. Other animals have that too. Wolves work really well in groups. Other animals have they're things that they use to survive. This does not make them better than us. That does not make them worse than us. That makes them different. And when you start seeing animals as something that belongs where they are, the indigenous groups who I spoke to saw themselves as part of the ecosystem and the other animals also as part of the ecosystem. It means you treat those animals differently. You absolutely come into conflict. Of course you do. But that is a much more equivalent conflict than a, we're going to wipe out everything before it can hurt us. They felt they had slightly less of a right to just feel constantly safe all the time. And I think that's really important. I, I wonder sometimes why we feel we should be able to go into the woods, into a place where we don't normally live and be totally safe all the time. Yeah, it seems like it's a much more sustainable model. And it's also not just um, ecologically, but also psychologically, that it's much more in tune and more realistic. And as your book points out, in, in example after example after example, when humans try to control things too much, a disaster follows. Well, and mostly because we don't understand what we're trying to control. <laughs> it, well, and it's because, yeah, because what we're trying to control is so incredibly complicated and so powerful. 
It's like trying to hold back the ocean. I mean, the oceans are going to be rising, or they are rising. And you, it's only so high you can make your dikes before they fail. But on the other hand, with the indigenous uh, examples you give, that it's not as if indigenous people didn't do any kind of interventions in nature, but they were much more modest. So, for instance, they noticed that when you clear the land, it, it attracts grasses, which attract deer, and then you can hunt the deer. But they didn't do it on a massive scale to, to grow beef cattle. Right. The interventions are more holistic. They are thinking on a more ecosystem level. And they're based on very, very strong knowledge of the system that they're working in. And that was one of the things I was very, very lucky. I got to take a couple of courses on traditional ecological knowledge as, as part of my research for the book. So I was taking them via Zoom, which was actually kind of one of the lucky things about the COVID pandemic is that I was actually able to get into these classes where normally I would not be able to take a class at the University of Kansas. <laughs> but <laughs> there you are. I, I learned a great deal about just how much knowledge many indigenous groups have about the ecosystems around them. And especially when you think about the knowledge that we have of our ecosystems. Do you know what species your grass is? I do, actually. Probably, Probably because everyone has Bermuda grass around Oh, here. well, okay. Yeah, that <laughs> doesn't count. Um, but I mean, you know, most of the time, if you looked at most of the plants you came across every day, most people probably wouldn't be able to identify them. Oh, at least not, not without the Google app, the What's This app. <laughs> right. Yeah. I often frequently get photos from my friends of like small creatures and they're like, what is this? Is this a newt? And I'm like, you don't, you don't have newts where you live. That's a salamander. <laughs> so, you, so you've become an animal expert for your friends. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but it's, it's just, it really highlights to me how little we feel we need to know about our own natural environments. And that's not to insult us. We know lots of other things. Like we know how to podcast and we know how to drive and we know how to go to the grocery store. You know, these are things that we need to survive. For indigenous groups, what they needed was a deep knowledge of their environments to survive. And that's what they had. And now that's the kind of knowledge that we need to have both to live comfortably in the environments that we live in now and to kind of coexist with the species that are already living there. Right. And it seems like it's knowledge combined with appreciation is, this, is a, a much better combination than knowledge for the purpose of overestimated control. Right. It's knowledge combined with respect and also knowledge combined with curiosity. A lot of times when people living in cities, for example, see a rat, they absolutely lose their minds. They freak out. Oh, my God, it's a rat. It's so gross. Get it out. They do not ask, why is the rat there? What is the rat eating? Why is this rat in my house? And that's an important question to ask. So l let's talk a little bit, go back to almost the beginning of the interview and talk about mice. And it's just, a, as you mentioned earlier, it's just a fascinating story because it kind of tells the story of, of civilization's Con, con, having to contend with maybe the first pest, but also you, you really uh, have an affection for mice. And th th I think most people see them as much cuter than rats. Of course, they're little and they have these wonderful little ears and they're, uh, they, they don't seem as, as uh, menacing somehow. 
But you talk about uh, Moose uh, Macedonicus, the uh, wild mouse uh, living in Eastern Europe and Israel, and and uh, and then you contrast him or her with the wildly successful cousin Moose Musculus domesticus. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Who is the domesticated mouse, and and we in a sense created the domesticated mouse. Yes, yes, that's absolutely true. Though I do want to have a side note. People often think mice are cuter. Having worked with both mice and rats, rats are better. I will I will just go ahead and say that because rats actually like you. Rats want to snuggle. Um, when you work with rats, I used to, I was a scientist. I worked with both mice and rats. And when you work with rats, they will snuggle in your elbow and they, they'll like snuggle up in your armpit because it's warm and they'll like play with you. <laughs> mice, mice want nothing to do with you. If you've been bit by a rat, you earned it. If you've been bit by a mouse, it's Tuesday. Like, mice... <laughs> I, I appreciate mice for their honesty. Mice don't like you. They don't want to be around you. <laughs> but so what's fascinating about the kind of domestication of the house mouse is that, in a way, the house mouse, I want to say, tamed itself. The word domestication is a loaded one that promotes a certain amount of screaming and yelling among different scientific groups. So <laughs> let's not use it. Yeah, so in the study that I was talking about at the top of the interview with the earliest house mice, there were two species of house mice actually living in the Levant at that time, two species of mice. There was Mus macadonicus um, and Mus musculus. Honestly, like pronunciation is probably... The language is dead. You can pronounce it how you like. Um, I say Mus musculus <laughs> and Mus macadonicus. <laughs> uh, but uh, Mus macadonicus, they think, was not as well positioned to deal with humans. So it was more afraid. It was a little more twitchy and did not want to be associated with human settlements. Mus musculus, however, didn't mind it as much, right? And was willing to take the risks for the opportunities that living near humans afforded, aka trash. And because of that, there was actually a speciation event between Mus musculus and what would become Mus musculus domesticus. And that allowed this house mouse to become the house mouse, was this lack of fear. The house mouse is an adventurer, so to speak? Yes, yes. And it's really fascinating because they've done some really great animal cognition studies on house mice and compared them to mice that do not live with humans. And mice that live in cities and like urban environments are actually better at solving human problems than mice living in country wild environments. So they'll like lift lids off petri dishes, they'll go through windows of Lego houses, they'll get little mealworms out of tubes. <laughs> they're just, they're better and faster at solving problems because of what they have experienced living with us. So we're a, a healthy challenge for them, it sounds like. I mean, that's one way of putting it. They're, they're always getting better at living with us. We are often getting better at fighting them, <laughs> but they are getting better at living with us. I wouldn't say that they're like gonna be scoring genius on Mensa examinations anytime soon, but <laughs> <laughs> they, they are absolutely becoming better adapted to our environments. Yeah, what's really fascinating though is is that the the domesticated mouse is the mouse of our environment. It's not an in invasive from the, from the wild or at least it hasn't been for 
thousands of years. I mean, it's, it's evolved with us. And the same could be said of urban pigeons, that we, of course, domesticated them for the purpose of, uh, well, food and also uh, messengering. And, but they've been with us for so long that they're kind of part of us in a sense. Yes, the pigeon is one of my favorite examples from this book, actually, uh, because of why we came to hate them. <laughs> I talk to anybody from New York and they'll go on about rats with wings. Pigeons do not deserve this. First of all, stop maligning the pigeon and also stop maligning the rat while you're at it. Pigeons are fascinating because, yes, we brought them deliberately. We used them. They are domesticated. We domesticated the pigeon around 5,000 years ago. And it was for food. If you haven't had pigeon, it's delicious. You can still buy it. It was for messenger services. I think people often underestimate the importance of pigeons for fertilizer. So, for example, the Persians would construct these giant, fascinating dovecotes for their pigeons that actually angled the pigeon poop down to the bottom so you could collect it <laughs> for, like, easy compost collection. People really underestimate how useful that is. And the most useful thing about pigeons is that you let your pigeon out in the morning, and the pigeon goes away, feeds itself, and comes back to exactly where you put it. <laughs> right? Amazing. It's amazing. And... What's sad is that we lost our use for the pigeon. So over time, we developed telephones instead of messenger pigeons. We developed chemical fertilizer and uh, we developed chicken instead of, you know, pigeon. And people started to be able to buy their chicken from the grocery store instead of keeping their own pigeons above the roof of their house. And we lost our use for the pigeon and we let them go. And they are used to living among us. And so they just kept doing what they've always done. They just went out, they fed themselves, and they came back. And they just happened to be coming back to Manhattan. <laughs> and people, and now people are mad. <laughs> and, and we're especially mad at, at pigeon people who you know, feed them and they're just covered around, with, surrounded by pigeons and have them on their arms. And yes. Treating them as pets, in a sense. Wild pets. Yes, yes. Uh, one of the major things I think I learned through this book... If, if I can tell people one thing to do to better improve human-wildlife interactions, stop feeding animals. Stop it. Stop feeding wild animals. They don't need you. <laughs> they don't need you. And the more you feed them, the worse it's going to get for everybody. <laughs> well, then you're turning them into a pest in a sense. So often, yes. Um, and, you know, so for example, um, people really hate individuals who go out and feed pigeons in bulk. Uh, because you end up with these vast flocks of pigeons, because pigeons will reproduce up until the point where they can't, you know, afford it food-wise, <laughs> and then they will stop. Yeah, and the same with, with cats, people who hoard cats, and I mean, or, or even feed them outside, they can proliferate really fast. Right. My favorite example of this is bears. People feed bears. And we think that people feed them accidentally, and they do. Um, so, for example, people often feed the birds. They put up bird seed. And in areas with lots of bears, bears come and eat the bird seed because bears in the fall need about 20,000 calories a day. And a nice big full bird feeder is like 18,000 right there. Thank you. <laughs> it's a great option. And so bears will start to eat bird seed. And from there, they start to associate human dwellings with food. And they come closer and closer. And they're eating your dog food and they're eating your garbage. And then they're in your fridge. <laughs> right. They somehow manage to get into houses. Often, yeah. And, and the sad part about this, both for the pigeons and for the cats 
and also now for the bears, is that when we decide those animals become a nuisance, when we label them a pest, the animal that it's the animal that suffers, not the person. It is never the person who fed the bears who suffers. It is the bear who dies. Right. The individual bear, or in the case of cats uh, or even horses, uh, campaigns to kill them by in large numbers. I mean, that was the case in Australia. Hunting seasons. We I mean, here in the Southwest, there's coyote killing contests, very controversial. But you know, some people think, well, that has to happen because of the uh, ranches need, need to protect their cattle, and it's the kind of kind of a war mentality. Yes, and that was something I I thought about a lot. Is that the concept of pest, the concept of human wildlife conflict, is a concept that allows us to go to war, right? It it allows us to take preemptive strikes in the form of coyote contests, or uh, Burmese python hunting contests in the Everglades, or um, bear hunting, uh, which is happens up and down the East Coast every winter. These are kind of preemptive strikes against an animal that we feel has no value, or less value. And if we thought of animals differently, and if we thought of ourselves as being part of an ecosystem, where these animals had a right to be, we might take on different mindsets. I think there's different ways to deal with this. And I think I came out of my research for this book thinking in a more defensive mindset, not always thinking about offense, get rid of the thing, but about defense first. You know, maybe you need to protect your own garden instead of buying a BB gun. I hope you're not suggesting that urbanites need to get rid of bird feeders too, right? It's only when there are bears and and the like that are attracted. I hate to tell you this. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. In some circumstances, yes, it is fine to feed the birds. However, when was the last time you cleaned your bird feeder with a 10% bleach solution? I don't actually have a bird feeder. I I have trumpet vine flowers instead. (laughs) Okay. But I mean, most people do not know that you need to clean your bird feeders because if you don't, they can actually spread disease because of the crowding at bird feeders. That's a major issue, actually. Another issue is that when you live in an urban environment, that's true, you don't have bears, but you do have rats and rats love bird feeders. So there are some areas, so for example, many suburbs, where it's probably just fine to feed the birds, and the only other thing you might feed are some raccoons and squirrels and possums. You know, you do you. Please clean your bird feeder. Uh, But (laughs) there are other situations, you know, when bears are active, um, in areas where you have rats, where it's probably not effective. And we also, I think, and I know this is probably going to be controversial, need to think about why we're doing it. Why are we feeding the birds? Because we're not doing it for the birds. We're doing it for us. No, it's because we like to see them. Yeah. Yeah, we like to to watch them. Right. The birds don't need us. (laughs) They are fine. The same is true of, of the pigeons, right? People feed pigeons because they want that relationship with pigeons. People feed birds because they want their relationship with birds. They want to see them. And there's more than one way to do that. You don't need to feed birds. You could, for example, grow trumpet vines. Um, Or I grow um, echinacea, coneflowers. Birds love coneflowers. Or you could install a bird bath or a sand bath, which are things that birds love, but bears don't really care about. So that's good. (laughs) But I think it's, it's useful to think about 
when you feed birds or when people feed deer, people feed deer in huge amounts. Why? And the answer is not for the deer. The answer is for the relationship we want to have with our environments. And I think it's worth asking why we want to have that relationship and what are some other ways that we might be able to have that relationship that could cause less conflict. One of the things that you didn't mention in your book is is the uh, attraction and affection that human children have for animals. I mean, every kid's book has, you know, animals that, you know, they speak, they're kind of really human in animal form, but but little kids love animals. They see them as, as cuddly and, and sweet and attractive. And then something changes you know, as we grow up. Well, what I find really fascinating, and I mean, I'd say that I am, I love animals. I do. <laughs> I love them very much. Um, and one of the things I found fascinating actually in learning from some indigenous groups, and I'm particularly thinking of Douglas Nislas, who is the chief counselor of the Kittisiu Hehe in the Great Bear Rainforest in British Columbia. And he said, look, we have lots of stories with animals in them too. We tell these stories to children all the time. But the stories that we tell give these animals agency. These animals are not cute. They are beautiful, but they are to be respected. And I think that's a pretty crucial difference is the way that they think of animals from the time they are children is not something that they should be allowed to cuddle, but something that has its own agency and is worthy of respect. I think that is something that we could do. I mean, the reason lots of children think animals are cuddly is because we tell them they are. Right, And it seems that the, the part of the respect is to recognize that they are not us. They have their own individual essences, their own points of view, their own needs, their own interests, and that they are other. But, you know, we can be relating to the other with respect, but they're not just an instrument for us to use. I'd like to actually quote from your book that I think is a nice kind of summary of, I think, what you're trying to do. You write, I hope that, like me, you'll end up with respect instead of disdain. Awed by sheer adaptability and persistence, I hope you'll even cheer for a rat or two. Pests are proof not that nature is out to get us, but that it's all around us. Nature lives in our walls, poops on our heads, and eats all our tomatoes. Pests are what happens when we think we've got nature all figured out, and nature decides to give us the finger. Their story is one of human irritation, but also of animal triumph. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think the more we can appreciate the animals around us and the ecosystems that we live in, the less we'll want to fight them. And it's, I would hope there's a kind of, I don't know if the word is fringe benefit, but there's a benefit <laughs> to a change of attitude of, of feeling uh, more Im- embedded in, in nature, that there's something, um, I guess, heartwarming and, and co- a feeling of connection and, and uh, support in a way, even at the same time that there's competition and rivalry and irritation and uh, you know it's a complicated complicated relationship as there is with anything but it's so different than trying to be uh, the, the kind of the dominant species that does does what we want which is uh, doesn't work out so well yeah as I ended up noting um, kind of in the conclusion of the book the domination mindset results in this very kind of strong dichotomy of the way we deal with animals, where we see an animal and it's not too close and it's cute and we want to cuddle it we want to feed it I need to feed it. I need to have it land on my hand. (laughs) Um, I need to have my moment with this animal. And then that animal gets too close 
for us. And the dominion mindset switches immediately to the other side, which is it needs to leave. And I don't care if I have to kill it. If I have to kill it, that is what needs to be done. And I feel that if we were able to kind of shift away from that, to see ourselves as part of an ecosystem instead of in charge, to see these other animals as having their own agendas within this ecosystem, we might be able to come up with more of a range of responses. We can look, but not snuggle. <laughs> well, I, I, Bethan, I think you've made a marvelous contribution to helping us to change our mindset uh, about animals. So. I want to thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Bethany Brookshire, a science writer and author of the book, Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.